I've been looking forward to this one. Escapingthecave.com, also on the ChristopherMedia.net network. Thank you, comrade. My mom says it won't last. Your mom's an alcoholic. Oh, yeah. Escaping the cave. And I'm getting really sick of guys named Todd. Please do not use gendered language to, to address everyone. That's Todd, Todd Villa. It is triggering to my anxiety. Like the be comradely doesn't ju- isn't just for like you know let's keep things civil or whatever. It's so that people aren't gonna get triggered and so that it doesn't affect their performance as a delegate. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I I can't get enough of that. I can't. Did you hear him say being comradely? Did you hear that at the end there? Oh my God! It's one of the most egregious. Examples of Tom Fuckery <laughs> that I've seen. Oh. oh, God forbid they listen and get triggered. Out of Toddzilla Files, it is yet another episode of the Tonzilla X Pod, formerly known as the Toddzilla X Pod, Escaping the Cave. That's what I call it now. See, I'm so entertained by these democratic socialists, I can't even get the name of my own damn podcast correct. You can find the podcast at escapingthecave.com. You can also get it over at the ChristopherMedia.net uh, network as well. Hope you're having a good week. It's early morning, Saturday. Oof, August 16th. 17th, rather. It was the 16th. Boy, I'm off to a rip-roaring start. Usually that's a good sign. When I start stumbling around the beginning, usually I get my flow pretty quickly. Hope you're having a good week. Uh, As I mentioned in the last uh, couple of podcasts, I've been advertising, encouraging, almost imploring people uh, to listen to this podcast and probably the next two after this. Because as I continue on this propaganda theme with Jacques Ellul from his book from 1965, the book Propaganda, these are the sections that I'm coming into right now. I mean, the, the psychological effects of propaganda have been... If you've been listening to this, creepy. This one and the next one, particularly. Even more so. And then I'm going to get into agitation propaganda, and I'm going to talk a little bit, I think, about uh, how he saw propaganda affecting things like democracy. It's not fun. It's been a really interesting week. I got into the... (laughs) I did this podcast the other day, and I'm not kidding. The very next day, I got sucked into yet another piece of disinformation. This one didn't come across Twitter. It didn't come across normal Facebook channels. It came from a friend uh, directly via Messenger. Somebody else had posted it. He took it and downloaded the file and sent it to me. I, in my infinite wisdom, decided, well, I have things to say about this. I think I'll share it with my friends. Yeah, this is about the uh, transgender thing, how transgender people, they're not entering into the mainstream dating scene because straight guys don't want to date a trans woman. And the piece of the meme thing, the piece piece of disinformation basically was 98% of straight men won't date trans people because of hatred. They're bigots, which of course is some infinite, staggering, gargantuan piles of bullshit, right? Well, normally, yeah, you would think, well, this is just stupid, ignore it. Except the problem is, as I've been talking about in these podcasts, is that the best propaganda, the best disinformation is based on truth. And I had seen articles like that. There's still one up on Psychology Today saying pretty much the same exact thing. They didn't use the 98% data, the information, 
But apparently they got it from somewhere. These people had gotten this stuff from somewhere, and they had seen the same things that I had. So it makes it believable. It makes it seem like this is something that's not out of the ordinary. It doesn't seem all that suspicious after you've seen a number of authentic pieces like that, like I had. Where do you think I got that? The original stuff was being shared on Twitter. I was reading it, my temperature rising. So, you know, I could, I could basically just cut and paste exactly what happened to me with the Antifa piece a couple of months ago and put it right here. The same thing. The problem is, is that I haven't been on Twitter. I got rid of all of these people weeks ago. I'm following four people. Three of them have to do with the ChristopherMedia.net website, and the other one has to do with Andrew Sullivan. That's it. Just Andrew Sullivan and three podcast things. And all they do is post podcasts. Yet I'm still being affected by this crap that I had ingested and internalized weeks ago. Weeks ago. Tell you. The psychological effects of this shit, they're not easy to deal with. They're not easy to purge. They're not easy to get out of your head. And... Again, I used this analogy before. It's not really an analogy. It's something that came from Jonathan Haidt. When you've ingested this material for so long, and you've seen it over and over and over again, people are using these, these maybe extreme examples, or maybe they're out-of-the-ordinary examples, but they're real examples from real places, from real people, people who are promoting this sort of cultural engineering, where straight men should be considering dating trans women. Because the little gender voice in their head tells them they're a woman, so I should accept that and want to, you know, have sexual relations with that. I've heard that before. I've seen it before, repeatedly, from real people. That's the fuel. And then you get somebody over on 4chan. All right, Somebody who's seen the same stuff, has malicious sort of intent, wants to just basically troll people, trigger people, <laughs> provoke people. They see this, they create it, they take the information from it, they put it on a meme, they sort of doctor it up a little bit, make it a little bit more intense, a little bit more triggering, provoking. Tag it with a fake organization that sounds real, and you throw it out into the, into the ecosystem. And people start picking it up. People start sharing it. People start passing that shit around. They, the people who agree with it will pass it around as though it's real information. As though it's from a real source. They don't care that it's fake. They agree with it. They like the tone of it. It fits their, it, it falls into their scripture. It falls into their ideology. Right? And then the other people, like me, who will take this as an example of something you've already probably seen and throw it out there as an example of what's wrong with these stupid fucks over there. Complete with, you uh, should read the stuff that I put on there. Franken-Vag. <laughs> was one of the words that I used. Was one of those examples where the fuel from the stuff that I was reading over on the IDW stuff, the IDW people over there on Twitter, that little um, sort of sealed-off echo chamber, where they're taking these examples from the extreme left and throwing it out there like, jump to the anti-left sharks. I'm not saying the conservative sharks. Maybe they're not. I don't know. Maybe these are people that think they're um, sort of in the middle. They're unaffiliated. The one thing that binds them, most of them, is they don't like the left. 
So these influencers over there, it's how I got it. Sorry, if you don't like it, if you're an IDW fan, that is where I got it. It's exactly where I got it. I'm using myself as an example here. How this stuff works. They take extreme examples and they throw the chum to the anti-left sharks who are floating around IDW Twitter. It's fuel. It's like kerosene, man, pouring kerosene into your skull. And then you come across something like this. Fake or not, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The susceptibility doesn't, it, it isn't dependent upon the thing being real or fake. You agree with it. You've seen it before. It fits the narrative you've seen. So you'll take it in this sort of inflamed state that I'm going to get to here in a couple of minutes. I've got all of this ties into the podcast today. All right. You're going to take that. That's the fuse. That's the lighter. You've got a kerosene filled skull and you've just put a detonator in it. That's sort of the foundation and the basis for agitation propaganda as well. And most of the time, the best stuff, this is why the best stuff is always based on truth of some sort. This wasn't a bold-faced lie. It was completely fake. The organization was fake. But the content of the meme, aside from hatred and bigotry, although I had seen bigotry out there too from the, the actual site. So just the hatred part where they're blaming it on hatred of trans people. They're blaming the reason straight people won't date trans women. Straight men, specifically, they said, will not date trans women because of hatred. Not because they're repulsed by having sex with a man. It's hatred. That was the thing. I mentioned, <clears throat> I think in a couple of podcasts now, this thing that I got from Jonathan Hyde. I mentioned it a minute ago. Uh, the standard of can I believe this? Two standards. If you want to believe something, you'll ask yourself, hey, can I believe this? Is this something I can believe? Is this something I can give myself permission to believe? And if you don't want to believe something, the standard's a little bit different. You're going to be like, must I believe this? Is this something I have to believe? Ah. And you're going to go finding reasons, any reason at all, to support either the want to believe something or the aversion to believing something, the aversion to changing your opinion on something. This is a universal mechanism, I think, in everybody's mind. Maybe you don't realize it. Maybe you no, not me. Oh, I'll bet you. You want to put some money on that? And this is what happened because I had seen all of that stuff. Yeah, I could believe it. The thought occurred to me, I think at some point, like, is this real? Oh, yeah, I've heard this before. Of course it's real. Nope. It's twice it's gotten me. And this stuff is getting... You know, Rich said... I had a little chat with him about this this week. And he said there's an element of genius here with these people over at 4chan. Maybe you don't like it. It might be an evil genius, but they're getting really, really good at this. These people that are creating these fake things, all they want to do is provoke you. They just want to provoke people. They want, they want to sort of provoke the fight. I don't know if what I saw from 4chan was actually real. I, I honestly don't know. Apparently it was. It's all over the place. This uh, posting where that original meme came from. And one of the things they said in that thread was that they want to watch the media just further destroy their credibility by defending it. 
And I'm sure that happened out there. I didn't see it personally. Nobody in my, it wasn't up very long, but nobody in my uh, friends list defended the meme itself. But can you imagine if they had? I'm sure that happened. I'm sure that happened out there somewhere. It had to have, right? And you're defending, now you're defending bullshit. There is a level of genius to it. I see it. It gives me pause because it indicates these fuckers over there, 4chan and 8chan, understand you better than you know you. I talk about the media and the propagandists, the propaganda industry, knowing you, the advertising industry, knowing you better than you know yourself. Apparently, these guys are learning some things as well. What does that say? Are you cool with that? Are you cool with these 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 snot-nosed kids, probably? Sitting over there 4chan or 8chan, knowing you better than you know yourself because you haven't bothered to think about your cognitive processes and what you believe. I Look, I can't put myself on a pedestal here. I have fallen for this twice in the last couple of months. I shouldn't say you. I apologize for that. And there is. You got to be understanding about this, I guess, because... It's getting more sophisticated. It's getting better. And there are more examples to choose from as we further, further, you know, sort of trudge into these, this polarizing extremist environment that we're in. So you're getting more examples to choose from, or they are. And you've got more examples to base your snap decisions on. We have more decisions to base, or more uh, examples to base our snap decisions on. I'm, I'm going to work on that. In this case, I have, there's no defense here. I can't say you. I have to say we <laughs> in this case. Because, yeah, yeah I, it, it's turning out that uh, I am I'm becoming my own best example. It's good that I can see it. It's good that I'm mindful about it. It's good that I'm at least open to the possibility <laughs> that I, I can use myself. But as I'll talk about probably at the end of the podcast, it's disheartening. Because I am basically, well, basically, I am obsessed with this stuff. At this, at this point in my life, right now, as I work on this stuff and as I sort of, sort of churn it out, process it, articulate it, and then churn it out, I am pretty obsessed. I'm really aware of this stuff right now. And I'm still, still getting hit by it. The only solution, I said a hundred times, you got to, Basically, disconnect. It's the only safe way to do it. He says in the book that the human mind cannot withstand the propaganda onslaught. He said that repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. He doesn't sit here and say, there's going to be hope. There's hope at the end of the rainbow. There's a pot of (laughs) critical thinking gold at the end of the rainbow. He does not say that. Quite the opposite, actually. And I see why. If you're going to be involved in this at all, if you're going to be you know, plugged in, you're going to be propagandized one way or another. You have to look, I guess, at maybe like, maybe look at po- politics and political commentary, political material. You have to look at it with the same critical eye that I guess we look at advertising. Like somebody's trying to sell me something, what are they trying to do? And then pay attention for, you know, you go to a used car lot. You got Herb Tarlick out there <laughs> trying to sell you 77 Nova. Telling you it's a great piece of machinery, man. You're going to you're going to be skeptical. You're going to be cynical. You're going to you're going to question his motivations. 
I think that's the only solution here. You have to do that with everything you see. Everything you see that comes across the internet, that comes out of any politico's mouth, you have to treat them almost like an adversary, almost like that sleazy used car salesman. What are you selling? What are you selling? Especially, especially the people you agree with. Being aware and being leery of them exploiting your stereotypes and your prejudices, how you feel and how you see yourself. Good luck. Seriously, good luck. And this all goes back to one of the most important things, and I, I talk about this repeatedly, and it's the, uh, the data overload current events man tie into all this. I mean, even if you can think critically, even if you have the capacity, where do you get the adequate information from? Where do you get relatively clean information, clean data? I know a lot of people will say NPR, uh-uh. New York Times, no. Washington Post? Uh-uh. Where? Where are you going to get it? A lot of, a lot of people say uh, Reuters. I don't know. I, I don't really pay that much attention to Reuters. I used to. There's a reason I blew them out. I know that. I used to pay attention to The Economist. They went away. Wall Street Journal? They went away. Where are you going to get it? Where are you going to get news that's not commentary? And is there a reason you're not getting news that's not commentary? Is it because we demand ideological content from our news? Media 101 podcast. Yes, it is. Same thing with Twitter. Same thing with Facebook. That's why we have these echo chambers, because we demand the news and information that agrees. It's us. It's supply and demand. There's a market for it. It's being filled. They have figured out a way through this mechanism to monetize propaganda. He doesn't talk about monetizing propaganda in any of his stuff in 1965. This is a new phenomenon. 20, 30 years, maybe. But it's like taking your own shit and selling it back to you. Soil and green, it's people, it's people. I mean, where do you get adequate information without choking your mind on bullshit? How do you, where are you supposed to get that? And I, I honestly, I, I'm not sure how to answer that now. I don't know. How do you keep random stuff from skewing your ability to think clearly? I don't know. The only thing I can think of is to unplug. But he gets into this as well. Then you're just giving up. You're not making a decision to abstain from the political process. You're being forced out because you can't get any information. It's like a cacophony of nothing. I love that phrase. I've been using that for a long time. The cacophony of nothing. And you get frustrated and you just bow out. What does that leave you? That leaves everything to the extremists, the, the, the fundamentalists, the Puritans on each side to decide the course of the country and the politics. Is that good? No. We are so not ready for this technology. As time goes on over the next couple of years, the next few years, it's going to become more and more apparent what this is doing to us. I don't think it's even apparent yet. I think we're seeing the symptoms of it. I think we're seeing you know, the division, the hatred. It's being unleashed by the agitation stuff. We're seeing some of the symptoms right now, but I don't think this scratches the surface of it. Psychologically, I, I, I don't think that they've made the connection. I don't think that the tentacles have been stretched out far enough. The blanket lifted up to see how, how the tentacles reach out from these phones and the internet connection, the social media, always being connected. And how this technology has triggered what I call the, the golden age of propaganda. 
If Goebbels could have created a perfect scenario, probably it would be this, where he's got you in the front pocket whenever he wants you. Whenever he needs to sort of paint, do a little touch-up paint on your mind's wall, he can do that. Again, I assumed when I started this a few months ago, in a while back, I mean, maybe even a year, I, I figured that if I, if I could be aware of it, that it would help immensely. That I would be able to just separate from it, I'd be able to keep the bullshit away from me, I figured I'd be able to detect it, right? No, it doesn't work that way. The stuff that I'm talking about that happened with the IDWs, month, six weeks old, it's still in there. And what about, he doesn't get into this, but what about the propaganda of your own small social group? I mean, most of the stuff I'm talking about is coming from an organization, right? But what about the repackaging and re-propagandizing as being done on, an, on a one-to-one individual basis? I mean, think about this. This doesn't just connect people. All right. In 1965, if you wanted to repackage and repurpose propaganda that you got in the newspaper, you'd have to cut it the fuck out. Or you'd have to take your newspaper to your friend's house and make him read it. You don't have to do that anymore. Now it's the share button. That's all you have to do. Do you realize how staggeringly easy it is for that shit. Of course you understand it. You've seen it. But have you really thought about the difference now and how quickly this stuff spreads from mind to mind? This is uncharted fucking territory. There is no precedent for this at all. I mean, radio was a boon to the propaganda industry 100 years ago. Radio basically gave birth to it, as we know it now anyway. This is beyond that, exponentially further beyond that. I'm not sure there's an answer to any of this. How to keep your mind relatively clear. How to, how to maintain and hold onto, desperately hold onto that critical thinking faculty. I'm not sure it's possible. Again, I feel it every time I open up Twitter to share a podcast and I see something. I see something. Even though I'm not following anybody, there's something there. There's, there's shit that comes through my phone. I have an iPhone. It comes through the news thing. You see it in the commercials. You see the, the sociological propaganda coming through normal television programming and commercials now. Open up Facebook and you've got Kirsten Gillibrand sitting there asking for money every single fucking day. Or somebody else sharing something like I did. How do you escape it? How do you protect your mind from this? If you're not impervious, if you're susceptible no matter who you are, how do you protect your mind from that without turning into an, a technological hermit, becoming a neophyte? Is that the right word? I don't know. Yeah, nobody can fully immunize themselves from this shit. I'm going to talk about immunization here later on, but not that kind of immunization. It's a weird word I'm going to throw at you today. <laughs> Prejudices, stereotypes, narcissistic perspective. It's like we're pinballs in the machine, man. Bouncing all over the place. And I'll tell you, I uh, read a great article by Andrew Sullivan that came out this week. If you haven't read that yet, I think it's in the uh, New Yorker Intelligencer or something like that. Uh, but he talks about basically the boomerang effect. 
Some great stuff. I was going to read a lot of it. I'm, I'm running long on this, so I'll just leave it to you to go find it. But it talks about the boomerang effect. It talks about how people will just dig in. They see somebody doing something over here and kind of maybe, I don't know, accusing them of something or making them feel accused, making them feel like a target. So they just run the other way. and that, It's exactly what I've been talking about. Bilateral uh, reactionary radicalization. I've been talking about that for a couple of years. He gets into it. He puts it all on the left. Like, the left is doing this, so the, therefore the right is doing this. He, I don't think he went far enough. I, th- I don't think that's a political ideological thing. I think that's a human thing. And while he says that the radical left is provoking this in the right, I think also that Trump, Trumpism, and the batshit, whatever the fuck that is over there, is doing the same thing to the left. I, I think it's mutual perpetuation. If that's a word, I hope it is. Yeah, I might be on this book until Halloween, man. I flipped ahead to propaganda and democracy, and this speaks to a lot of what we've been talking about on the podcasts as well. I haven't even started with Bernays. <laughs> a lot of stuff there. We should get to it. Creep. I've been looking forward to this one for a long time. Creation of the need for propaganda. You want your propaganda. You need your propaganda. You like your propaganda. You cannot do without your propaganda. Oh, are you twitching? Are you twitching right now? I see, I hear you out there. Propaganda. In the spirit of Nicholson, correct? Let me lay the case out for you, shall I? He starts out by saying the individuals subjected to propaganda can no longer do without it. And he calls it a form of snowballing. The more propaganda there is, the more the public wants. This isn't being hoisted upon you. You want it. The reason you're consuming it is because you desire it. Same is true of advertising, by the way, as far as the snowballing effect goes. See, when they decided to start this, when they uh, started putting TV uh, ads on television, it was believed that advertising on TV would supplant, replace newspaper advertising. Like, no more ads in the newspapers. Everything's going to be on TV now. But it was found, on the contrary, that TV actually increased the total volume of advertising business. You would think... That with all this advertising, being bombarded by advertising, there would be this outrage, a repulsion against it. We would not, we would demand it be taken away or else we're not going to, you know, watch these programs. We don't mind it. On some level, we're willing to sit through it. We're willing to endure it. And they're more than happy to give it to us. This operates, I think, on the uh, propaganda level uh, as well. The need for a growing volume of propaganda involves two apparently contradictory phenomena. And one of these words is really hard to say. I'm going to say it one time. <laughs> Mithridid- I can't even say it. Mithridatization. 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 The other one is sensibilization. And when he says mithridatization, he's talking about a tolerance or an immunity. The definition I got from the uh, internet is a tolerance or immunity to a poison that's acquired by taking gradually larger doses of it. That happens, he says, with propaganda. He says, under the effect of propaganda, 
the individual gradually closes up. Too many propaganda shots. He becomes accustomed and then insensitive to them. Stay with me here. He becomes accustomed and then insensitive to them. Basically, the frog in the pot. This is what I've been talking about when I was talking about my Latin America and hitchhiking trips. Where you get resensitized to it when you're gone, when, it, when, it, when the propaganda goes away. Even the television advertising, when you're not being bombarded with advertising for a, a short period of time, it only takes maybe a week. Maybe. Maybe that long. And then suddenly you're immersed in it again. Holy shit, it hits you. It hits you like a tidal wave. Like, what the fuck is all this? You become resensitized to it. I love that story about I was up hitchhiking around Lake Champlain. I'm at a truck stop up there in Vermont. 8 o'clock in the morning. I've been gone for just a week. I happen to be at this truck stop. My last day out, I go in to charge my phone. They had the Today Show on in the trucker's lounge. And I found myself screaming. Yelling. Yelling at Matt Lauer. Because he was everything had an advertising angle to it. They were selling Smucker's jelly with hundred people, hundred year old people having their birthdays. Hey, you're a hundred, let's sell jelly. Maybe you find nothing wrong with that. Maybe that's part of the sense of desensitization process. I personally find something very wrong with that. And maybe it's just me. But after being gone for a week, resensitized to it, sitting in a truck. I, I was afraid I was going to get kicked out of there for yelling at a goddamn television. Every single time that I've gone out hitchhiking or I've gone down to Latin America, as soon as I hit the airport, as soon as I land stateside, get through customs, the sensory assault. Did I just sound like one of those democratic socialists? Yeah. I hope not. I apologize if I did. But the sense of the advertising <laughs> assault. It hits you. Again, it's like a tidal wave. It's like, boom, from every side. Flashing graphics on the television, the newscasters screaming. I always have news on at the airport. Everywhere, there's some image. There's something trying to attack your senses, trying to get you to buy something. And it's weird because you can feel it physically. You can feel yourself readapt to it. Sometimes it takes an hour, sometimes it take, takes a couple of days, whatever. It always, you are the frog in the pot. And you get re or desensitized. You go back to the state, and pretty soon you don't even pay attention to it. Or do you? Anyway, he no longer reads the newspaper. Back in 1965, after he's been myth immunized build a tolerance. He says he no longer reads the newspaper, but merely skims distractedly over it. You just sort of see what's on there, right? So people might say that the excess of propaganda no longer has a hold on the person who's built this tolerance. Somebody might say that. He's used this example. Apparently, it was that, that, that sort of um, rationale was used in his day. He thinks that's bullshit. He thinks that uh, somehow the idea that somehow these people are now really immune, like the, the propaganda cannot affect their mind because they built a tolerance to it, is bullshit. I, I sort of look at this like if you're drinking, if you're a drinker, just because you can keep pounding beer, you're taking your shots at 3 o'clock in the morning and you're not getting any drunker, doesn't mean it's not affecting your body somehow. That's what I thought about when I read this anyway. 
According to Alul, this same individual continues to turn on the radio. He continues to buy the newspaper, though. Or flip on Fox, flip on NBC, click on to Facebook, click on to Twitter. Hello, I'm raising my hand here. Even though he knows better, even though he knows it's not reality in the case of social media, it's not reality, it's not factually accurate, you know you're getting propagandized, you know you're getting spun, you know you're getting bullshit, even on Facebook with your friends uh, posting there how great their lives are. Instagram's notorious for this. You know instinctively this is bullshit. You don't care. You still go. You still buy the newspaper in his uh, metaphor, or my metaphor of his writing, and you still turn on the radio. So yeah, the the guy has an immunity, right? Sure, he has an immunity, but what is he immunized to? And he says it's only to the purpose and the intellectual content of the propaganda. Stay with me here. Well, then it doesn't affect me. Stay with me here. And he says this is true. He has become indifferent to the theme of propaganda. When you flip flip on NBC, you're not. It's not hitting you emotional. You know what's there. You know what you're getting. Or you flip onto Fox News or CNN. You know if you watch it, you're familiar with it. You know what's coming. Right? He's become indifferent to the theme of propaganda, the idea, the argument, to everything that could form his, the listeners, the viewers, the propagandese, personal opinion. You're immunized against everything, everything that you would use for critical thought. That's what you've been immunized against. You're immunized against seeing that as propaganda. He no longer needs to read the newspaper or listen to the speech, he says, because he knows the ideological content in advance. He can just skim it. You can do this on Twitter and Facebook right now. You know exactly, I'll get to this later. He knows the ideological content in advance, and that would change none of his attitude because he's become monolithic. He's become an intellectual imposter, a caricature of both himself and his ideological cult. I have reworded that. That is mine. That's exactly right. A caricature of both himself and his ideological cult. He is an intellectual imposter, taking someone else's material and repackaging it as his own. He's let the group opinion suffocate his own opinion. This is what I was talking about before with the thoughtless opinions and the uselessness of engaging in 7 billion cases of personal nuance. I had that episode maybe two or three back. In many, and I I dare say most cases in 2019, these (laughs) demanded cases of personal nuance, they're a waste of time and can usually be avoided by just a quick skim of the parrot's ideological virtue signaling social media profile. You can find out where they're coming from. You can already, you don't even have to listen to what they're saying. You do not even have to read how they've cleverly repackaged the doctrine because it's already there. You can tell just by looking at the profile what they think because you've been exposed to the propaganda. You've been exposed to that scripture so many times. And how often, how often, really, if you get past the rhetoric and you get past the argumentation, the, the retained attorney's argumentation of the case, if you get past the bullshit, how the lawyer's arguing, how often do you see somebody that is really unique and diverse in their opinions? 
Especially if they have that, that ideologically parroted, virtue-signaling, uh, social media profile decorated so. A blue wave on their Twitter profile. Proud Democrat. MAGA. How often do you see somebody diverge from that in any meaningful way? The core is always, almost always, I can't say always, but almost always, the core is the same as just about everybody else you see. You don't need to engage in personal nuance. It's distracting. It's a waste of time. It's like answering the door when the Mormons come a-knocking. And thinking they're going to say anything different than the Mormons said three weeks ago. It's the same idea. It's the same exact thing. If you want to engage, Brother Smith... Brother Johnson, you go right ahead, but you're not getting anything different than you got from Brother Jackson and, I don't know, Brother Gump two weeks ago. And nothing's going to be different. You know it, I know it. It's the same thing when you try to engage people, when you engage people, when you engage these fabricants, particularly on social media, but also in person. Now, I will say this. I have had reasonably fruitful experiences one-to-one with individuals who were encamped in one of these Jonestown compounds, sitting them down by themselves when nobody else is watching. Nobody else is there for them to put on a show. There's nobody there for them to see them sort of questioning the beliefs that they've held so dear and pronounced so loudly. Then maybe you can make some headway. I've seen that happen a little, tiny little bit. I've seen it happen a little bit maybe on Messenger. But you're never going to get that. You're never going to get that in a public setting like a thread on fucking Twitter. Or a public thread in front of all their friends on Facebook. You're never, ever going to get that. You're sure as fuck not going to get that if you go to like Fox News, uh, some feed on Fox News, and start engaging, particularly aggressively engaging, a Fox News zealot. A Trump bot. You're never, ever going to get them to even think about changing their mind or think about their positions because you put them in a defensive position in front of the mob. That's why you get the trial by rhetorical combat. Just think about the psychology of it. You probably, I dare say, Facebook's been around a long time. This isn't a new topic. This isn't a new thing that people are talking about. You have probably felt that yourself at some point. Where somebody's challenged you and you have got to. You have got to fight them off. Because there's people watching. You will not let yourself be humiliated in front of all of those virtual avatars. You just won't do it. Think about what you're feeling. Think about that. I've been there. It's usually when I'm at my meanest. Not usually. That is when I'm at my meanest. Like, I'm going to savage this person. This is, it's almost like a survival situation. Psychologically. I know it's, it's stupid, it's irrational to think of it that way. It doesn't matter. Who the hell said people are rational? Oh, well, I'm rational. Are you? You sure? I got a stack of papers here that says you're probably not. Oh, yeah. Seriously, don't take my word for this. Go try this out. Go try, try it for yourself. Just scan the profile. Get a quick encapsulation because they're always going to decorate the profile to let everybody know what they are. They're going to put their little, little billboard up there, a little bit, uh, virtue signaling billboard to attract people. Let, and let them know you're one of the good ones. Go look at it and then maybe scroll through some of their tweets or some of their posts if they're public. 
and find out if anything diverges at all. Maybe now and then it will. I'm not saying this is everybody, but yeah, get back to me with your quote-unquote research on that. You tell me if I'm wrong. This is Emerson, man. This is from uh, Self-Reliance. If I know your sect, I can predict your argument. You are the retained attorney. Once you've taken the case, you're a reta- your elephant is the retained attorney. That's going to argue the case to win and not to be right. He says, though it's true that after a certain time, the individual becomes indifferent to the propaganda content. All right. That does not mean that he has become insensitive to propaganda, that he turns from it, or that he is immune. All right. He's built a tolerance to the content. It doesn't mean it doesn't affect him. And this is where it gets creepy. What this means is exactly the opposite. For not only does he keep buying his newspaper, keep you know, clicking into his ideologically pure echo chamber in 2019, he also continues to follow the trend and obey the group or the party's rules. He continues to obey the catchwords and slogans of propaganda, digests them, internalizes them. Children engages! He feels it. So he, he actually feels like there are children in literal cages in those concentration camps at the border. Insert Trumpian ones here. Though he no longer consciously listens to any of this stuff, he doesn't really listen to it. He just, it just comes in and, and affects him, triggers him. He reflexively swallows and regurgitates all this stuff. Think about this. Here's an example for you. Do you really sit there and really listen to like the ABC song when you hear it? You really think about it? I mean, you're so familiar with it. You memorize it. You know what's coming. You don't have to sit there and think about it anymore, right? A, B, C, D, E, F. You don't, you don't. You're not consciously thinking about that song. You're just sort of regurgitating it. You've heard it so many times, right? Thinking about it is a waste of cognitive time. It's there already. You don't need to engage your mind to recite it or to know what's coming. I think it's the same idea. In the same way, the doctrinaire has memorized the scripture and the commandments. He knows what's there. It feels familiar. Yes, 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 yes. He continues by saying that uh, the man's reflexes, this is what we're talking about here, reflexes, conditioned reflexes, they still function. He has not become independent through this mithridization. He's a reflexive reacting organism, reacting to stimulus. On the contrary, he says he is deeply inseminated, my word, I like that word. He's deeply inseminated with these symbols of propaganda. He is entirely dominated and manipulated. He no longer needs to see and read the poster or the meme in 2019, the simple splash of color, or the familiar image, slogan, idea is enough to awaken the intended reflex. This is what happened to me earlier this week. In reality, though he's developed a tolerance to the ideological content, he is oversensitized to the propaganda itself. It's not the ideological content. It's the propaganda itself. Think about the, just the, the, the grand scope of our society now. The outrage mobs, how easily people are thrown into a fucking tizzy by everything. Overreact. There's no scale to everything. It's 0 to 11. This is exactly, I hate to say it, I hate, I hate this. I hate that I have to say this and I have to admit it, but this is exactly what happened to me this week. 
I saw this and immediately I reacted. Immediately my mind twitched and I went from eh to err. Immediately. And I followed the reflex. And I am hyper the fuck aware this happened to me. The same thing happened to me two months ago. I spent a lot of time talking about it. Embarrassed as fuck. And yet it still fucking happened to me. I'm aware. I understand it. What the hell is happening to people that do not understand this and have no concept of what's going on and how they're being manipulated, how they're being spun, how they're being poked and prodded? 24 hours a day, seven days a week via these devices. How many people do you know of that are addicted to these things that just reach down and check Twitter or check Facebook without even thinking about it, without even knowing they did it? How many of you are one? I was. You just reach down, oh, is that, oh, or you get the little red circle telling you that somebody has, somebody's praised you maybe, somebody's liked something, somebody thinks you're witty. Somebody thinks you're smart. Somebody likes the picture of your guacamole salad. Or in my case, somebody likes your picture of Machu Picchu. Or somebody likes the picture that you posted of you sitting by the road hitchhiking. Dopamine. This is another thing here. This is another thing that, that he doesn't even touch on. And I wish to God he was alive to do it. Because what does that do? When you, when you tether, dopamine hits. And maybe this is part of it. Maybe this is a part of it back in his day as well. Maybe the, the triggering, maybe it's, that's how they're conditioning us, is via dopamine. Maybe this was going on back in the 60s as well. I don't know. But I would love to see how you can train somebody to react to propaganda based on both propaganda and sort of associating that with the dopamine hit to get from uh, social media. I mean, this is creepy stuff. So that's mythridization. I do not have to say that word again, I don't think. The next thing he talks about is sensibilization. Say that fast three times. And I call this specifically the Twitter effect. Oh, it gets better. (laughs) The Twitter effect. The more uh, the individual is captured by propaganda, the more sensitive he is to it. All right? And he's not sensitive to its contents, but this is what I was just talking about, to the impulses that it gives him, to the excitement that it makes him feel. Now, analyze your feelings here. If you're one of these Facebook warriors or a former Facebook warrior, there was an excitement there. There was a charge when you got ready to run onto the virtual battlefield. Or when you saw somebody that, okay, I can take this person. There's a, a rush, a psychological rush to that. A physical rush. I don't even think it's just psychological. With me, I felt it in my my entire body. Like my, it's almost like the survival instinct kicks in. Like your sharp, your, your mind sharpens up. Maybe you wiggle your fingers to get ready to punch in your righteous missives. The more sensitive he is, not to the content, but to the impulses the propaganda gives him, to the excitement that it makes him feel. The smallest excitement, the feeblest stimulus, activates his conditioned reflexes, awakens the internalized myth, the narrative. Awakens the internalized myth, awakens the narrative, the programming. And it produces the action, the action. It produces the action that the myth demands. Up to this point, an enormous amount of manipulation and a substantial dose of cleverly coordinated stimuli was required to do all this. 
The motivating drives of the psyche had to be reached. The doors of the unconscious basically had to be smashed open. Up until this point, his attitudes and habits had to be broken and then new behavior determined and trained. Not anymore. And this meant the use of methods and techniques that were both subtle and crushing. He's got a section on brainwashing at the end of this book that I've kind of picked through. That's what all that stuff sounds like, is brainwashing. But that's not needed anymore. Before you got to this point, before you're addicted to it, before the need has set in, and once the individual has been filled and ultimately reshaped by propaganda, action by so many methods is no longer needed. A tiny dose is all that is required. Having a little meme sent through your messenger. A tiny dose to trigger that outrage or that excitement or that self-righteousness. How, whatever. I don't know your psychology. I don't know everybody's psychology. I know mine. Usually I'm pissed off. My Facebook warfare was always against something. It started with Palin and the Tea Party. And then it was against Trump. And now it's against, I guess, the batshit left. I'll get into agitation propaganda later on, but that's what this sounds like I like. How about you? What's yours? What's your material of choice? Lul says that it's enough to basically just refresh or uh, give a booster shot, his words, uh, or maybe to repaint with uh, just a regular touch-up every now and then, the inside of the mind's wall. And the individual obeys in striking fashion. He compares them to drunks who get hammered on one glass of wine. All you need is a little bit. A little bit. A little bit top you off. He no longer offers nor cares to offer any resistance to propaganda at all. Moreover, he has ceased to believe in it. He has ceased to believe that propaganda exists consciously. Consciously. He has ceased to believe in propaganda consciously. I I think he's talking about, like, the Soviet state. This is 1965, remember. He may be talking about, like, in in the case of one propaganda. Like old Soviet propaganda, maybe from Pravda, right? So he doesn't believe propaganda exists in that state. However, I would add, I would add to this, in the dueling propaganda society, like ours, You believe it exists, but just not on your side. It's the same thing. It's the same mentality they had in the old Soviet Union as it pertains to your propaganda. You don't believe your propaganda exists. However, you'll see it in theirs all day long. Instantly, immediately, you won't be able to subject yourself to it. Will you, MSNBC viewer? Will you be able to go over and watch Sean Hannity? That takes some superhuman shit, or you're just, maybe you're drunk, maybe you're just picking on it pointed out, something like that. But you'll never be able to, most of the time, you're not able to watch it. I've heard that over and over repeatedly for 10 years. I felt that. I can't do it now. I cannot watch more than probably, I I can, I guess, if I'm doing like a research kind of thing to see what's going on, but I can't watch much Maddow. I can't watch Chris Hayes at all. I cannot watch Brooke Baldwin in the afternoon on CNN and her, I'll editorialize with my eyes and my facial expressions. Doesn't matter. I, I cannot watch Don Lemon at night. No way in hell. That's naked. That is naked. Chris Cuomo, are you kidding me? And Jesus Christ, who's that dude that's on after uh, Meadow? I'm sorry, Meadow. Lawrence O'Donnell. And of course, over on the right, yep, Hannity, Tucker Carlson. Uh, in the afternoon, they're not nearly as bad. I can listen and I can watch Shepard Smith in the afternoon. It gets to about 6 o'clock, though. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think it's Brett Bear that comes on at six. I'm like, okay. No, this is this is a bit much. And once the individual's been filled and ultimately reshaped by propaganda, he no longer cares what it says about its quote-unquote proclaimed objectives, but instead behaves and acts according to the proper stimuli. He's not listening to it. He doesn't care what it actually says. He's more concerned with the stimulus and how it makes him feel and what it makes him do. That's the target. That's the objective at that point uh, on somebody who's already been fully propagandized. And here again, he says, is the dissociation between action and thought that I talked about in the last episode. The individual's corrupted, he's standardized, he's crystallized, cognitively crystallized with regard to his thinking. It's no longer his own. It is in this domain of the opinion that, oh, there it is again, that mythritization takes place. In other words, that's, this is in the domain that, that the sort of the immunity takes place, or the, the tolerance, the built tolerance to the ideology, right? Or the ideas behind the propaganda. That's where this takes place. But in the domain of action, of action, he's actually mobilized. He's activated. He responds to the changing propaganda inputs, acts with vigor and utter certainty. Let me repeat that. He acts with vigor and utter certainty. Utter certainty, even with reckless spontaneity. Hello. Raising my hand again. Reckless spontaneity. I didn't think that through. Despite knowing it. Our hero now, our protagonist, is now a ready activist. But his action is purely irrational in the literal sense of the word. It's purely irrational action. Literally. It's pure fabrication and has nothing to do with reason. This is Heights Elephant. The justification, the rationalization. This is also, as I mentioned earlier, Emerson's retained attorney. The elephant, the attorney, however you want to look at it, has taken over now. The rider has been tranquilized. And he says that is the effect of the propagandese sensibilization to propaganda. And this is important. He says the individual who has arrived at this point has a constant and irresistible need for propaganda. He is an addict at this point. And like any addict, he cannot bear to have the propaganda stop. And it's easy to understand why when we think about the guy's condition. Think about it. There is a path to empathy here. There is. I have got to find it. If I'm going to have any, any intellectual honesty here, intellectually, emotional, even self-respect, I've got to have the honesty here, and I've got to be able to, to relate to this because it happens to me. And you know what? If it's happening to me, I'm going to, you know, not to put myself on too high of a pedestal here, but if it's happening to me, I dare say, I'll wager that it's happening to you as well. If you're this immersed in propaganda, I'm going to get into the, the, the whys of this immediately after I get done here, after I get done saying this. If your entire worldview, your entire identity is based on this steady stream of propaganda, if your justification of your social network is based on this, how can you bear 
to have it stop. If you're getting your sense of, I don't know, superiority, sure, but your sense of self and your sense of righteousness from your daily stream of propaganda, both pro-your side and anti-their side, because everybody wants to feel better about themselves than somebody. I think Marr talked about that this week. Last night he was talking about how, how we used to watch the newspaper and be like, well, at least my, my life's better than his. But we can do that now too. We, can, we, can, we get all these examples of other people who are worse than we are. At least I'm smarter than him. At least I'm more ethical than him. At least I'm not a racist like him. That both is judgmental, sure, but it also it's judgmental to elevate yourself, to feel better about yourself, to feel better about your group, to elevate your standing, either in your mind, in your, in your, your friends, your social group's mind, your echo chamber's mind, to elevate your own status. This is righteousness. This is the same psychology, the base, base, same basic psychology that these Puritans used a few hundred years ago to attack savages. We're better. They're subhuman. It's the same idea. I, t- I mentioned I went on a little tirade, a mini tirade in the last episode talking about superiority or supremacy. You know, white supremacy is not the only supremacy problem we have. We have a huge problem with ideological supremacy as well. And I dare say, I dare say, oh, yes, I do. I'm going to say it. I dare say it. I got spunk. There are more ideological supremacists in this country than there are white supremacists. There aren't that many white supremacists. I'm sorry. There's not. There are not that many fucking people out there that actually think white people are so much better than black people, brown people, Arab people. There are some. But I'm going to tell you, I lay money on this fucker. There are a lot more, infinitely more ideological supremacists out there than white supremacists. And you can understand, though, now, you, you, if you think about it, if you, mindfulness. Especially if you're caught in this or mired in this, mindful of your own feelings, mindful of your own cognitive process and how it makes you feel, and really asking yourself, this is hard, man. This, this, this is getting into some really difficult shit here. It sounds simple. It sounds easy. It ain't. Mindfulness. Paying attention to how the propaganda affects you. It will lead you to why, or lead you to understand why you need it. And will also, I think, lead you to a path of empathy for people who are caught in it and can't get out of it. And that is most people. That's why there's no sausage party hope coming at the end of these episodes. This is going to lay it out for you. This next page right here, this next page and a half is going to lay that out bare naked for you. Why this is not going to be fixed. Why we are in a triage situation here. Why we have to worry about ourselves and correcting our own behavior, correcting our own, I guess, uh, reflex to bask and roll in the informational mud. You can't fix anybody else. The switch has always been internal. I've been saying that for a long time, too. The switch is internal. And even if you flip it, it doesn't always work. You're still going to relapse. This is an addict situation. You probably will relapse. I have relapsed multiple times. I still am. If I were to open Twitter right now, I could find myself relapsing in five minutes. I know I could. I know that. 
I don't like it. I don't like saying that. I don't like admitting it. I didn't expect this. But again, there is a path to understanding. And that may be finding that path, maybe tending it, keeping the weeds out of it, keeping it open. That may be the best we can do. I don't know that it's, no, it's not going to change anything on the grand scale. But on an individual level, on a, on a man-to-man level, an individual, an organic individual to an organic individual level, it might make a small difference to a small number of people. Best I can do. Let's get into this, huh? So, I'll repeat that. An individual who has arrived at this point has a constant and irresistible need, in capital letters, need for propaganda. Like any addict, he cannot bear to have it stopped. And he says it's easier to understand why when, when we think about his condition. And then he lays it out. He lays out the condition in, the, what, three main points. The first one <laughs> is because he once lived in uncertainty, self-doubt, and in general anxiety. Sounds like a teenager, doesn't it? Once lived in uncertainty, self-doubt, and in general anxiety, propaganda provided him certainty. Now his anxiety doubles at the very instant when propaganda stops. He got used to it. And all the more so because in this terrible silence (laughs) that suddenly surrounds him when he unplugs from his propaganda stream, This terrible silence, he who permitted himself to be led by propaganda, this is hugely important, he who has permitted himself to be led no longer knows where to go. He's lost. And all around him, especially today, this has gotten so much worse than 1965, all around him, he hears the violent clamor of other propagandas seeking to influence him and seduce him. And that increases his confusion. You put the mind in the zoo for a long time, and to take the propaganda stream away is the equivalent of taking this domesticated animal and releasing it into the wild. It doesn't know how to hunt on its own. This is the loss of critical thinking that he talked about, the atrophy of critical thinking. What do you do? You're a doe out in the nasty wilds of a Michigan woods in November. You don't know how to forage. You don't know how to. You don't know how to be. You don't know how to exist without the certainty of that propaganda. The second thing he says is propaganda removed him from his quote subhuman situation and replaced it with a feeling of self-importance. Eek! It permitted him to assert himself and satisfied his need for active participation. When it stops or is removed, even if he tries to break free himself, he finds himself more powerless than he was before with a feeling of impotence, all the more intense because he had come to believe in the effectiveness of his actions. Suddenly plunged into apathy, no personal way of getting out of it. He acquires a conviction of his unworthiness Much more violent than he felt before, because for a while, he had believed in his worth. 
in the context of propaganda in the group. Take that away. It has no meaning. It has no self-value. Because his value came yeah, from the religion. It made him who he was. Uh, and this is also the scene in The Matrix, I think, where uh, Morpheus extracts Neo from his power cell. You know what I'm talking about? The tubes come springing out of his arms, out of his back. The, the interface comes, gets unscrewed out of the back of his head. And he's sucked down into the pod, spit out in the water. That's what this is. When you take the propaganda away, that's exactly where you are. That is a wonderful metaphor. The Matrix is a wonderful, I, just beyond the acting and all that crap, it's a wonderful movie. Because it is. It's based on Plato's Cave. It doesn't take a genius to see the similarities, but that scene right there, I think, really illustrates artistically what he's talking about here. Yeah, where Neo's taken out of the power cell and the Matrix, and he is introduced by Morpheus to the barren desert of the real. The propaganda is going to be helpless because he's never stood on his own feet, or if he has his muscles, or, continuing the metaphor from the Matrix, his eyes in the movie, have atrophied never been used or haven't been used in forever they're not going to work right it's terrifying now like with the whole uh temet noski thing or tainoski and the noski teipsum thing truth at all costs know thyself all that stuff I, I i leapt into this that stuff there know thyself truth truth at all costs I, headlong arrogantly naively 15 years ago I didn't know what the hell I was getting into. I severely underestimated how difficult that was going to be. I have I seriously underestimated how difficult this was going to be, too. I have been dealing with a lot of that stuff that I just talked about, and a lot of stuff that I'm going to continue to talk about for two years, over two years. It's getting better. It's getting incrementally better. Actually, a lot better now that I think about it. But still, I'm relapsing, obviously. I'm in danger of just swinging to the other side like he talked about because I lost the, the liberal far-left propaganda. Now I'm in danger of being sucked into the right vortex. I see that. I can. I, it's pretty self-evident, actually. <laughs> I thought I was just going to step away from that and be like, ah, I'm a free man. Nope. There's a lot more to it than that. And it reminds me of when I, oh, I'm just going to learn to know myself. And I did. I started down that path. I started down that path with gusto. And I didn't find what I thought I was going to find. Oh, my. Nietzsche's abyss. Go to the website. Check that out. Escapingthecave.com. Might be on TonzillaX.com. Go look for the abyss post on there. It reminds me of this. I got completely in over my head with the know thyself stuff and trying to attach myself to truth. Not my own truth. I'm not saying my personal truth, but being truthful about myself. <laughs> ah, that sucked. I never really recovered. I lost my religion because of it. Th that actually, that will play in here. But uh, yeah, I, I underestimated how psychologically difficult it is it's sort of to extract yourself from the matrix of your choosing, right? A couple of years ago. How hard it is to lose that external certainty 
And learn to rely on yourself. That's why I keep talking about Emerson, self-reliance. That was huge for me to find that. Huge. And plus the isolation and the self-doubt that came with it. You're standing on your own all of a sudden. Or pretty close to it. We have a couple of people that support you. I mean, in comparison, relatively speaking, you are standing by yourself on an island. Before, I had hundreds and thousands of people on my team. Now I'm going solo. Just try, if you haven't done this yet, try to just imagine in an abstract way how you're going to feel. The self-doubt when all of a sudden you've got to rely on yourself and your own judgment, your own intellect, your own ability to perceive things accurately. The self-doubt when you extract yourself from a doctrine, from a team, from a mob, the self-doubt is staggering. You're naked. It feels like being naked, and it feels naked and ashamed half the time because you don't know. Basically, I think if, if you're crazy. <laughs> I, made, I made a comment about this. Uh, at times, I feel like I'm nuts. I don't have a group here. I don't have anybody. I, I have the material that I've got. I've got authors, dead authors. That's my <laughs> sort of my, my peer group now. And a few people, a couple of people. Thank God I've got some people to bounce stuff off of. But not, no, it, it's, I think it's in relative terms. I think it's in a, a relative feeling to coming out of that, that group that I was in for 10 years. I think it's a relative feeling. Like there was certainty, there were people who were saying the same things, reinforcing everything I said. My inseminated opinions, I had people reinforcing them, therefore I felt secure in them. I felt right because, oh, might means right. All these people believe it, it must be true, right? But now, relatively speaking, there's none of that there. So coming from that place, feeling that for so long, and not having it, and looking at your own stuff, Thinking your own thoughts, reading your own material, because I write a lot. Reading that. Am I nuts? Nobody else is saying this. Until I found Emerson, until I found this Dr. Eli guy, until I found Nicholas Carr, Alul, I started seeing things that I had put in my notebooks, my personal shit, my own shit. Again, I, I, I sound like I'm tooting my horn here. There's a reason I keep pimping Emerson. There's a reason I keep telling people to read this and trust yourself because I don't think I'm that significant and that, that extraordinary here. I'm really not. But the stuff that I was coming up with and have been coming up with in my, my more lucid moments when I'm not thinking like a propagandist back for 10 years, I came up with a lot of this stuff by myself in these books. But it, particularly when I got out of the, out of the resistance and I started to really started to analyze some of this stuff, and then I started reading about the uh, social media disease material. And I started seeing a lot of the same stuff that I had put in my notebooks. It's a really special thing. <laughs> One of my favorite things. To see my ideas echoed by somebody two, three hundred years ago that I had never read. And I'm encouraging people to sit down, maybe with a notebook and a pen, and just let the fucking hand go. Stream of consciousness stuff. To get in touch with what's inside of your head. To get in touch with you, that original you that I talked about in the last episode, 
that is the one thing that is just original to you. And it's hard. It's hard to cut through the programming. But it's there. Self-reliance. You're going to have to cut through the language. And you're going to have to deal with some God references if you're an atheist. Think abstractly. You can do it. I believe in you. You've got great taste in podcasts. I believe you can do that. This part here is really, really hard. Especially the self-doubt, man. And developing the courage and the fortitude and the belief in yourself to stand on your own two feet by yourself and stand into the wind if that's what it takes. That's courage. Your conformity proves nothing. It says nothing about you. What actually says something about who you are and what you are is what comes from organically from within you. And whether or not you have the courage to A, find it, and then stand up with it. It's hard. But it's called also called being a real, living, breathing man instead of a fabricant. Or a cheap imitation thereof. Being an actual Gucci instead of a cheap Chinese knockoff. That's what this is. And if you run into somebody else, I implore you, and I, I try... Actually, I'm pretty good about this. If I see somebody else who's just sort of stepping out of the cave in the Plato analogy and starting to explore the upper world, you have got to be gentle. It is a almost a hate crime. And I'm not saying this, believe me, I'm not, I'm not saying this facetiously, to shit on somebody who's trying, trying, even if they're stumbling, even if they're falling down in the mud, pissing themselves, Stumbling and bumbling, slurring. If they're trying, you have got to help them. You have got to encourage them. If you stomp on them, do you realize what kind of a bastard human being you are? Really think about that. If you see somebody trying to engage their own fucking mind, especially in this day and age, and you attempt to squash it because of your fucking religion, your political religion... Now, let me see it. And if you see somebody else doing that, you have got to be gentle on them. And you also, if you're considering this or you're trying, you're failing, maybe you're frustrated with it, you've got to be gentle on yourself too because you are going to fail. You're going to fall. You're going to be wallowing around in the mud, discouraged because you've been conditioned. You've got to think about Neo here. Think about Neo on the Nebuchadnezzar. Now they had all those little uh, needles sticking out of I mean, to rebuild. You've got to rebuild yourself. You've got to <laughs> learn how to do this all again, if you ever even knew how in the first place. Be gentle. Be patient. Keep trying. Keep trying because it's going to be really easy to follow Cipher. It's it's much easier. Back in the Matrix, everything's provided for you. Everything's provided in front of you. Everything makes sense. Everything's laid out. You know who God is. You know right. You know wrong. You don't have to analyze anything. You just got to take your daily nourishment. Mm, My brain's full now. Mm. That's a coward's way out. As Emerson said, God will not have his work manifest by cowards. It takes courage to do this shit. Don't be fooled. I'll help you if I can. I don't know how the fuck I can 
yeah, keep going. You got to do it. That's your dragon. You got to slay it. God damn it, we need people doing this these days. We need more people doing this. Desperately. You understand that. If you're listening, I assume you understand that. If you're listening to this. One other thing I was going to point out down this line. Like when you lose your propaganda. Think back to right after the 2016 election. And the run-up to Trump-Clinton. Do you remember your liberal friends <laughs> after Trump won for about three months? till right around the inauguration time, maybe a little bit before the inauguration when they started to ramp up again. Does it sound like a lot of what I've been reading? Disillusionment, confusion, loss of hope, withdrawal. Maybe you're a liberal. Maybe you're one of them. Does that sound like what you went through in 2016? I did. I got the videos to show it. I was out hitchhiking <laughs> election day. I can show you the video. I got a picture of me inside my bivy. You know where I was election night? I was in Colorado Springs. I was sitting in a field behind a truck stop right across from NORAD. I literally I could see Cheyenne Mountain right across the road. And I got a picture of me in the bivy after I figured out Trump was actually going to win that. Oh my God, I, I'm just, I got a cigarette in my mouth and I'm just, I took a picture of that. I just wanted to show what I was feeling. <laughs> and it, it ruined the trip for me. Like for two, three days uh, after that, I got up to Denver and I'm like, you know what? Fuck this. This is, I, I, I don't want to be out here anymore. I don't want to do this shit anymore. Trump, Trump, I can't say the words president and Trump together. I still have it and I still can't. I lost it. I, I, I could not existentially. I knew he could win. I knew it was a really bad idea to underestimate him, <laughs> underestimate the American people. But when it actually happened, it fractured me for a couple of days. I was supposed to be going up to Standing Rock uh, to like check out the protests and shit up there, and I'm like, ah, fuck this. I ain't doing this. And I made a beeline for home. I, I salvaged the last few days of the trip. That was good. I got my head on straight. It helped to just go. And not sit there and wallow in it. But no, it had a real effect on me. And I've seen this in other people. I've seen that effect. I had seen that effect in a lot of other people who were uh, Clinton supporters or anti-Trump people. And it sounds like a lot like what I've been talking about here. And one other thing here. I should continue. When he's talking about the, uh, what we were talking about is the why the propaganda needs propaganda. And he's describing the condition there. And the last one. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably the most, maybe the most important one. <laughs> Told you there was a lot here. Propaganda gave him justification. It gives him the justification he needs. Individual needs to have this justification constantly renewed all the time. He needs it in some form at every step of the way for every action as a guarantee that he is on the proper path. Propaganda ceases. He loses his justification. He no longer has confidence in himself. He feels guilty. Because under the influence of propaganda, perhaps he performed deeds that he now dreads or for which he is remorseful. 
This, I was experiencing well before I bought this book. This I know from personal experience he is 150% accurate on. As soon as I left the resistance, as soon as I got out of that, and as soon as my little social network started to break down, particularly on the internet, I mean, when people who I had been associating with and ranting against conservatives for 10 years, when they figured out that I was leaving, conflicts started to arise. A lot. Like, I tried to just walk away. I tried to shut everything down. I'm like, you know what? I think the first thing I said when I figured out what was happening is I'm going to become an equal opportunity offender. I should just step away. I had a group going on Facebook, a private group, where we'd just sit there and bash on Trump, talk about politics, stuff like that, right? And the first thing I did, like, okay, this isn't going to go well now. I need to probably shut this down. And I did. It didn't help. Because most of these people were still in my Facebook feed. They, I still had the page up. I was doing photography and blogging and shit at that time. And as I started to transition, I started pissing these people off. Because I no longer was preaching the good word. I was blaspheming now. The Holy Spirit had left me and was replaced by Satan. And as that happened, I started to realize these people are not my friends. Not really. No. I mean, I long had had an idea and a concept about Facebook friendship. <laughs> it's not really friendship. If you ever see me online, when I'm talking about Facebook and I'm talking about friends, I always put it in quotes. Friendship is... <laughs> I won't go into this very far. But Facebook has ruined the concept of friendship. To a great extent. I have this thing called Friendship Capital. Rich loves that. <laughs> it's exponentially more valuable to have FaceTime with somebody. More capital is accrued by far if I actually interact with someone on a personal level. Facebook friendships, for the most part, not always, but for the most part are cheap. I mean, that was started to be reinforced as soon as my political views started to evolve a little bit. Holy shit. And then when I realized, I started thinking back to everything that I'd done, everything that I said, to people that mattered over the years, for 10 years. This wasn't triggered by Jacques Ellul. This was something that just naturally happened. It felt horrible. I wrote a post in 2017. Remember, I left the resistance probably in March of 2017 right after Trump was elected. As soon as the resistance started to go haywire, I'm gone. And things started to sort of change and evolve a little bit. And I wrote, I can't remember, I'd have to look this up. It was in probably the summer, early fall. I wrote this post on my blog called A Mia Culpa, where I basically said, oops, I fucked up. I, I, I did. I went through, looking through, I called it the Facebook Boneyard. For 10 years, the relationships that were destroyed because of the political commentary shit, because of my own fierceness on the political battlefield, making it personal, how I had misrepresented myself because of political zealotry or ideological zealotry or anti-somebody zealotry. 
It was terrible. It's still terrible to think about. Still. And what's fucked up? I listened to those podcasts last week. I can still fucking feel it. It's still there. It's just going the other way now. This shit's insidious, my friends. Insidious. Do not underestimate this. And it wasn't just the uh, the Mia Culpa post. I did the uh, the Cyberspace Monkeys post, my most downloaded post or podcast. Sorry, Cyberspace Monkeys podcast. It's my most downloaded episode. It was put out in, uh, by far, by the way. Now, this was put out February of eighteen, year and a half ago. And I went into it there as well. I mean, just in case somebody didn't hear, didn't get the Mia Culpa thing, I took that down off my blog, basically took that and then integrated it into that podcast. Hey, sorry again. I was wrong. I didn't mean it. Well, I kind of did, but I wish I hadn't done it. <laughs> I wish I hadn't meant it, and I wish I hadn't said it. And then recently, there have been a couple of them on here. Recently, it's still happening. One guy, a convulsive twitch and the damage done. It's another podcast. If you missed that, you want to hear some of it, it's back there. Again, one of my most downloaded episodes. Seems to resonate with people either that or they like uh, <laughs> taking joy in my pain. Probably deservedly so. I relate to this very, very well. I have experienced this and I know I don't need him to tell me this. I'm glad he did, though, because it really helped um, help me understand where this was coming from. I was addicted to this. And part of me, I think, still wants it. Still goes looking for it. I want the fight. I want the battle. I've been doing this too fucking long to just cut it, to just get away from it completely. And sometimes it seeps out on here. (laughs) It's insidious. And I mentioned the, uh, the podcast, Convulsive Twitch episode. And what I've come to realize, I think it's obvious, pretty self-evident, is that the uh, the convulsive twitch that I referred to in that episode was largely, but uh, not completely, the desired action that was expected of the propaganda. As we kind of bring it back to the episode here. The desired action that Alul refers to repeatedly in this book. I think that's exactly what this is in 2019. I think it's a combination of propaganda dissemination and spreading via the share button. And also, probably, either intentionally or inadvertently, uh, an element, clearly an element of agitation propaganda. Releasing those hatreds of the other. The, the, I keep saying this, I'm sorry, but... The agitation propaganda episode is going to be huge as well. Because it is a technique. And whether or not we're doing this intentionally, whether or not it's orchestrated as such, I guess really doesn't matter because we're doing it to ourselves anyway. I think back to, I I don't want to get too far down this road. I keep going off into tangents, but I keep thinking back to 2016. They talk about the Russian uh, social media campaign. This has changed. It's like they keep saying now that the Putin was working to elect Trump. Maybe, maybe not. But I know that two years ago they were saying that he targeted both sides of this, that division was the goal. Division via agitation. 
releasing hatreds upon ourselves, unleashing it upon ourselves, the internal organism basically cannibalizing itself with manufactured hatred. I keep thinking about that. Listen to the agitation propaganda episode when I get to it. But again, talking about these pieces, I wrote the uh, stuff that I produced. They were, they were my meager attempt at forced accountability for myself, for my own actions. Completely inadequate. Most of it didn't work. I mean, a lot of damage done there. A lot of people. Family. New family that I had met in 2010. I talked about. Go listen to those episodes if you're interested in that stuff. Now, continuing on with a little. He says, now, the propaganda has even more need for justification after all this, after everything that's happened. Right? He's regretting what he did as a result of his propaganda, what the propaganda sort of triggered in him. He realizes it, and now he has even more need for justification if he stays inside of it, and then he plunges himself into despair when propaganda ceases to provide him with the certainty of his justice and his motives. You've done all this stuff. Now you need the justification more. Because maybe you feel guilty. And if you don't get it, you're going to be plunged, as I was, into regret and despair. <laughs> you, my friends, my collective quote-unquote friends, you do not have the buddy capital to hear about the rest of this. I'll continue on. When propaganda ceases in a group, a group now, where it has had a powerful effect, what do we see? That's the question Mr. Alul asks. He also answers his question. We see a social disintegration of the group and the corresponding internal disintegration of the individuals comprising it. They completely withdraw into themselves and reject all participation in social or political life. Through uncertainty, through fear, and through discouragement. They retract into their shell. They begin to feel that everything is useless, that there is no need to even have an opinion or participate in political life. They are now wholly disinterested in all that was the center of their lives. See, this, this is the part I think that reminds me of the, the liberals after Trump's election. They are now wholly disinterested in all that was the center of their lives. As far as they are concerned, everything will go on henceforth without me. The collective group then loses its value in the eyes of the individual and the group's disintegration. The group's disintegration follows from this infection of its members. Egocentricity is what he calls it. He calls that the product of the cessation of propaganda. And it will appear to be without remedy. Not only egocentric withdrawal, but he also says genuine nervous or mental troubles such as schizophrenia, paranoia, guilt complexes are sometimes found, sometimes found, not always, sometimes found in those who have been dominated by propaganda that has suddenly ceased. He says these effects could be seen in countries where propaganda suddenly stopped, such as Hitler's Germany in 1945, and, curiously, I didn't expect this, in the United States in 1946. To take very, two very different examples. Yeah, we <laughs> were using propaganda here during the war. Of course we were. It's wartime. It stopped. Elsewhere, I think this may be in the technological society, or it's elsewhere in this book, but he talks about how psychoanalysis, people flooded to psychiatrists, analysts, after the end of the war. And he thinks this is exactly why. 
You've seen like the the trope of like going to your analyst in the fifties, right? He thinks this is why because the propaganda that was being disseminated for the war. Well, the war is won; it stops. Ooh. These reactions, Mr. Alul said, correspond well to the alienation caused by propaganda. Talked about this in another episode. The man is diminished. By the way, when I talk about alienation, if you hadn't listened to that episode, it's alienation from yourself. Yourself being replaced with something else. That's alienation in his context. Says the man is diminished. He can no longer live alone. He can no longer decide for himself or alone assume the burden of his life. He needs a guardian. He needs a director of his conscience, quote-unquote. He also feels lost when he does not have them. And this is great. He says sometimes he's even aware of this, the propagandee. <laughs> he even knows it. And there are examples of individuals who complain that their psychological services are not active enough, not intense enough, and they have not been manipulated in such a manner by the psychiatrist as to enjoy the inconveniences of their lives. Does this sound... Oh, I'm not enjoying my inconveniences. Fix me. Eek. You know, I'd like to connect that to a lot of things. I don't have time. <laughs> let you do it. And he says, from the moment the individual is caught, he needs his ration of pseudo-intellectual nourishment, of nervous and emotional stimulation, of catchwords, and of social integration. Social integration. That's the 2019 echo chamber. Social integration. Your group. The ideologically pure social group, perhaps. Social integration via propaganda. Think about that. Other Puritans serving God. Propaganda must therefore be constant. What about the durability of propaganda? Does it last for a long time? Well, uh, though what's essentially an addiction to propaganda, through what's essentially an addiction to propaganda, rather, and the required psychological mutations, propaganda has profound and relatively durable effects. But, caveat here, but specific content of propaganda, the substance that at any given time serves to satisfy this addiction, thus reduce tensions, Okay, the specific propaganda obviously is only temporary and has momentary effect. Now, this is obvious. Think about uh, the protest. What was it? The Wayfair outrage. It didn't last very long. It never does. Like, people forget this shit all the time. It's gone a week later. It's gone. You move on to the next thing. You move on to the next thing. You move on to the, on to the next thing. A temporary and momentary effect must be refreshed and renewed all the time. The satisfactions that propaganda gives us are always in the immediate present. You see this everywhere. It has to be constant. It has to be reinforced. This is the outrage industrial complex. Outrage, anger, hatred is the necessary action or reaction, I should say. The reaction they're trying to provoke. If you think about this in the context of agitation propaganda, oh my God. And it has to be constantly renewed because it doesn't last. And I wonder if there is, like, he's talking about the, the tolerance effect. I wonder if you need more. Like any other junkie, you got to keep shooting up more because it doesn't last as long. Got to have more, 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 more. And I wonder 
as that happens and it gets more intense and more frequent, if the reactions if the uh, intensity of the reactions, the conditioned responses, I wonder if they intensify in kind. Because it is weird. Nothing has any sort of scale and scope anymore. It's always either 0 or 11. People are pissed off about the stupidest shite. Me too. Me, yes. <laughs> A meme. <laughs> A meme. 0 to 11 in point two seconds. We're thinking about. I'd like to see some research on that. For this reason, propaganda is not very durable. Individual instances of it are not very durable. It might be dopamine. I talked about the trips. As soon as I'm gone for a week, I don't even think about it. I, I'm like, okay, well, what the fuck ever. And this is why digital detox works. This, it will work. You've just got to be able to stick to it. And you've got to be able to do it effectively. You gotta have the perseverance to do it, but it does. It does work, and it works quickly. It has effects quickly. The problem is, it's too easy to relapse. Too easy, and it's it's worse than. Now, I've never done heroin, <laughs> but I can imagine trying to. I'm not gonna say it's worse than heroin, but I can sort of see a connection there. Like, okay, it's really hard to get away from this, and you finally do, and you're feeling better just a little bit, and you're right back at it. Frog in the pot. A very, very good way to think of it. The problem is the water heats up really fast and you're just boiling in it all of a sudden you don't realize it. Even if you've been gone and disconnected for a while. He also says this statement must be qualified. He said that uh, propaganda cannot run counter to an epic's deep-seated trends. Epic with a C-H. Cannot run counter to an epic's deep-seated trends and collective presuppositions. All right, it's got to go with the narrative. Can't go against it. When propaganda does act in the direction and support of these things, the deep-seated trends and the collective presuppositions, its effects become very durable on both the intellectual and the emotional level. He says, nowadays, and this is my 1965, propaganda hostile to the state or party, I added party, opposed to progress, quote-unquote progress, would have no chance whatever of succeeding. But if it does support the state, I'm adding party, or a demagogue added that as well, it will penetrate deeply into a man's mind and grow roots. So if it supports the state, it supports the party, it supports the target's demagogue, it grows roots. My friends, these are the people. You are not changing that mind. You are not saving that zombie. You're not changing hearts and minds there. You're probably just making things worse. You probably, when you think you are, by owning them, you think you're going to... This, was, this is a, a crime that I committed. Probably in 2010. I came to the brilliant conclusion that the only way to get people to really pay attention to their idiocy was to shame them. Make them feel shame. In retrospect... I spent the better part of a decade making things worse. The boomerang effect. Yeah, fuck you, Todd. I'll get worse. I'll just dig in for... I, people try that on me. I did the exact same. I couldn't see it. You're not changing these minds. You're not helping anything. If you go to Fox News and you think that you're witty banter, <laughs> it's going to change your mind via shame. You're wrong. You're fucking wrong. You're making things worse. You are part of the problem. You are making yourself a piece of agitation propaganda. 
You understand that? You yourself are becoming a piece of agitation propaganda by making yourself just as fucking deplorable as anybody. Ew. I didn't accept this for a really long time. And I think it's too late for me (laughs) to really make a meaningful change in this regard. Likeability helps. If people like you, they'll listen to you more than if you're just a dick. Like like I said, guilty. I didn't realize this. I thought that... I don't want to get into this. This is a little bit too embarrassing. But it does matter. People are going to listen to you a hell of a lot more if you're not a cunt. And if you are interested in changing minds. See, that's the difference. If you're really interested in, in doing some good, and you're really interested in engaging these folks who you've deemed as, I don't know, lost children, misguided children, and they need to be brought back in the fold, you're going to do that a hell of a lot better if you're nice to them and they like you. I guess I will save myself here. I will give myself a little hug. I wasn't really interested in changing minds. Not at all. (laughs) I don't think. No, I wasn't. I just wanted to fight. (sighs) Good times. Need for propaganda then tends to make this penetration permanent. The need for propaganda tends to make this penetration of propaganda permanent. Because when these effects are constantly reproduced and their stimulus is endlessly renewed, oh, this is perfect for these days, huh? The stimulus is endlessly renewed. They obviously affect the individual in depth. He learns to act and react in a certain way. He has not, however. This is some good news. You need it, right? He has not, however, undergone a permanent or total modification of his personality. You are still in there. Somewhere. You haven't totally been lost. You're not dead. You may be asleep. You may be, I don't know, cryogenic sleep. In a coma. But you haven't been completely and permanently destroyed. There is an element of hope there. I think that's a big one, actually. Propaganda is always concerned with the most pressing and at the same time, the most elementary actuality. All right. Propaganda proposes immediate action, immediate action of the most ordinary kind. Let me run to Twitter and Facebook. Right? Otherwise, it's no longer propaganda. If it's not proposing immediate action or the most ordinary kind of action, it's no longer propaganda. It becomes academic. And without effect. It is less a matter of general ideas than of familiarizing the worker, whom I'm calling the bee here as I invoke Jonathan Haidt. It's less of a matter of general ideas than of familiarizing the worker bee with the practical decisions of the party, the hive. Jonathan Haidt compares us to bees. As it plunges the individual into the immediate present, taking from him all control of his life and all sense of continuity of any action or thought beyond obedience to the message. And thus the propagandee becomes a man without a past and without a future, a man who receives from propaganda his portion of thought and action for the day. What say you, Joe Scarborough? What about Fox and Franz? 
His fragmented personality must be given continuity from the outside. His fragmented personality must be given continuity from the outside, and this makes the need for propaganda very, 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 very strong. Need for propaganda. When the propaganda ceases to receive his propaganda, he experiences the feeling of being cut off from his own past. Oh, yes, he does. And facing a completely unpredictable future of being separated from the world in which he lives. Because propaganda has been his only channel for perceiving the world, he has the feeling of being delivered, tied hand and foot, to an unknown destiny. He'd been dropped off in Africa without a map. You don't know what's up. What is this strange place? There's nothing here to explain it for me, and I don't know where I am or where I'm going. It's true. I don't mean to mock. I'm just having fun here. Do not go into this lightly. You may want to listen to this a couple times if you haven't started this process yet. And be prepared. Continuing on, thus from the moment propaganda begins with its machine and its organization, one can no longer stop. Now we get a little dark. It can only grow and perfect itself. This was 54 years ago. Without the technology. For its discontinuation, this is the key, I think, the key phrase for everything, everything I've talked about here, everything I've talked about in this episode, looking forward, this is the key phrase. You ready? For its discontinuation would ask too great a sacrifice of the propagandee, a too thorough remaking of himself. Should I repeat that? It can only grow and perfect itself, can no longer stop. For its discontinuation would ask too great a sacrifice of the propagandee, a too thorough remaking of himself. He won't do it. Why would he? So, you're looking for sausage party? Hope for a solution, are you? <laughs> a solution. I'm doing the air quote thing. A solution. You're looking for a cure? Looking for rapture? You looking for for the day of our deliverance from the evil propaganda? It ain't coming. Ain't coming. For a lot of reasons. But the the big one, <laughs> I just read to you. It's too hard. It's too hard to extract yourself from this. It's too hard for most people. I'm not going to say you. You're listening to this. You're sitting through a really long podcast today listening to this. I'm not going to put you in this category. It is really difficult for most people to extract themselves from this and then and then put themselves on this island alone, naked and afraid, with no bearing, nothing to explain anything to them anymore. They realize that they've been schnookered. Now they got to go figure it out for themselves. Maybe a little cynicism creeps in. Why would... Think about this rationally. Think about this with empathy. Think about this with just a little kernel of understanding. Why would anyone do... Maybe you don't have to. Maybe you're thinking this yourself. Why would anyone go through this? Why? I don't know. You know what I would do? If I could go back, I'm not 100% sure about this. I might, though. I think I'd go back to 2009, and I'd take that coyote idea. 
I'd stick it in a tin can, stick a little cherry bomb in it, and blow it the fuck up. I might. Because things changed at that point for me, personally. When I started trying to look at things and see things as they are, I quickly realized one of the first things I realized is that my religion, the thing that gave me the audacity, the audacity to go run around in a backpack, running around the country, when I figured out that was bullshit, dried the fuck up. And with it, bullshit or not, the narrative went away. The why went away. It was never the same after that. I tried in 2010. I tried like hell, but I was a different person. Because I was received differently out on the road. Go check out the, uh, what is it? The, the ass crack incident, tonsillax.com. I think you can get that link at escapingthecave.com too. Go check out the ass crack incident. That was 2010. Oh, it's fun. But yeah, things changed after that. I think I would go back. I would keep that narrative. Not the political one. It wasn't had nothing to do with politics. But it was the, the thing that drove me. It was the thing that sort of fueled me. It gave me the audacity of courage. Because I felt like, right or wrong, obviously, well, I would say wrong, but I felt like I was driven, like I was, I was meant to do something. And thus, perhaps, maybe, protected. It gave me balls. It gave me courage. Nihilists do not have courage. <laughs> you can say what you want about them. They may be realists. But nihilists are typically cowards. People who believe something, believe in something. Right or wrong, I'm not putting a a, a value judgment on this, but people who believe in something larger than themselves. Typically, I'm 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 thinking in the realm of, I I guess you could talk about in, in the political realm as well. They have courage. He's talking about that here. So They have certainty. They have courage. Certainty breeds action. Because you don't question yourself, you don't question your intentions, you don't question the righteousness of your goal, and probably in the fundamentalist fundamentalist religion realm, you don't question its success because God is on your side. So why would you be afraid of anything? It's the man who doesn't have that that has to fight fear. And that's where courage lies. Courage lies coming back to try to encourage you to do this. Everybody feels fear. Everybody feels fear. Courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is being able to act despite fear. That's what makes a courageous person. And I found I'm still pretty courageous, I guess. <laughs> relatively speaking, I think relatively to most people. I do a lot of things. But uh, relatively speaking to me in 2009, not so much. I had a lot more courage then. But then again, did I? Or was I just willing to do things because I felt protected? <sighs> I don't want to bend my own noodle today. Anyway, so if you're looking for a sausage party hope, for a solution, a cure, uh, I want you to take all the stuff that I just talked about. All right? All these psychological maladies that come and effects that come from uh, losing your propaganda. Right? All that stuff. And I want you to put this, I want you to think about this on a scale of 320 million people. All of them suddenly have their propaganda taken away from them. This is the best case scenario, right? We're looking for a cure. Sometimes the cure is worse than the disease. Think about this for a second. If this is taken away from us, 
maybe we have a sense of right and we want to tell the truth and we don't want to be propagandized and we don't want to be spun. This could be like going into a treatment center and taking people off the, off the medications that they've got to keep themselves from going into some sort of a detox seizure. Think about that. If this was to suddenly end everything that I just told you, everything that I just extracted from this book and passed along to you and told you why it is that people need propaganda and what happens to them once it stops, stuff that I have felt myself. This isn't some abstract. <laughs> this happened to me. A lot of the stuff happened to me. If you were to do that immediately and suddenly to 320 million fucking people, how do you think that would look? Sometimes the cure is worse than the disease. So the best case scenario, as we sit here and we inflate ourselves with righteousness of our own, <laughs> looking for a cure to all this. I mean, think about that. If you've got 320 million people suffering and staggering through anime and self-doubt, lost, unsure of themselves, of their place in the world, their place in the world in which they lack a kernel of understanding because it's been defined for them the whole time. That's a demagogue tyrant's wet dream. An entire population confused and lost and unsure of themselves. Have no idea who or what they are, where they're going, what they stand for anymore. The narrative has been destroyed. And the man who could provide those answers, in quotes, or the impression of those answers. A semblance, uh, just a reasonable facsimile thereof. Is that twice I've used that phrase? But even the illusion of the, the, the man who could pro provide even the illusion of those answers would be king. If for no other reason than the relief of their septic, chronic, Intense and acute anxiety. It's like I took the wrong week to quit drinking. Mm -hmm. Give me that burning wall. Give me Stalin and St. Paul. Give me Christ or give me Hiroshima. Oh, 
be nothing you can measure anymore. It's one of my favorite lines in any song at all. Late Leonard Cohen and uh, the future. A happy little tune. <laughs> to wrap up. I think that's prescient, though. I think that's prophetic. I said earlier, and I've said repeatedly, and I'm going to say it again, that we are, I think, in a triage situation where we have got to manage the effects of this. Because the advent of this technology coming as quickly as it did and having us as unprepared as we obviously are for informational anarchy, the ability to cocoon ourselves away inside of a chosen perspective and a personal truth and abandoning all truth, all facts, running counter to that and having constant reinforcement and now (laughs) seeing how we are literally dependent upon it Gee, that might be a bad situation to be in. We're totally unprepared for this. We do not understand ourselves nearly enough to be able to look in the mirror clearly. It's a funhouse mirror situation. Everything's distorted. And now we're all connected. We can all congregate into these virtual mobs online. And we can affect things beyond ourselves, beyond what we see in front of our face. In both positive and negative ways. We choose the negative. Maybe we don't like that. Maybe we don't like thinking that uh, people are naturally inclined toward the bad end of this. But we are. I don't see how you can look around at this. I have a friend of mine who likes to say, well, the internet, it has good parts too. Is it it worse? Is it more good or bad? I don't think there's any fucking question about that. I appreciate your optimism, and I appreciate you looking at the other side of that. I really do. But don't you think the evidence is in? Don't you think? Don't you think we can see it? Where this is headed? Where this is going to take us? When a society lacks the means to distinguish truth from falsehood, tyranny is close at hand. That's a paraphrase of Mr. Lippmann. I'm going to have an episode about narratives at some point. I was talking about narratives towards the end of that, of that episode. We need them. We absolutely require them. And Lippman thought the people were idiots. He thought the people were fucking morons that had no ability whatsoever, a hundred years ago, to see reality. And that they needed it defined for them. They needed the narrative provided for them so they didn't tear themselves and their society to shreds. I'm beginning to believe, Mr. Lippman, wholeheartedly. And you know what? I, I really don't make a distinction between a physical inability and an unwillingness to tell truth from falsehood. Just a sheer unwillingness to see reality for what it is in favor of your chosen perspective and, quote, your personal truth. The effects are the same. It doesn't matter if it's a physical deficiency or a personal choice. The effects will take you to the same place. You're still on the Titanic. It doesn't matter what side of the deck you're on. So on an individual level, I think that's where we have to talk now. I think I I have to speak to you on an individual, not as a society, not as somebody who thinks they're going to be part of the solution. I don't think there is a mass solution here. I think the only solution is on an individual one-to-one, one-on-one, individual case basis. I think it's the only way to look at it. And, and the way to do that, the only way that I can see to do this, if you don't want to be affected by 
Propaganda, if you don't want to be addicted to it, you don't want to be dependent upon it, you have got to disconnect. You have got to digitally detox. At some point, in some way, are you willing to do that? Probably not. It's just too convenient. We like our shit, man. I haven't done it yet. I've been ranting and raving about this. I'm still... The last episode, I'm still online. I'm still on Twitter. I still have to drop these fucking podcasts. I haven't gotten rid of Facebook. I've cut it way back. I don't post nearly as much as I used to. I'm not on there very often. I don't watch that much news, yet it still, still affects me. It's not one of those things I think you can just look and not touch. I think the looking is the touching. (laughs) So the trick, I think is a almost uh, militant nonconformist attitude where you are adamant as best you can for thinking and deciphering as much information as you can for yourself and not allowing yourself to fall into a data overload situation where you're choking on data and unable to decipher everything that you're taking in. Because, as he pointed out in this book, that if you do that, if you're constantly bombarded with an unregulated stream of propaganda, you're going to get to a point where you're going to become overwhelmed. Your cognitive processes are going to be plugged up. They're going to be clogged. And you're going to eventually come to the point where you have got to either accept or reject everything in total. You're just going to succumb. You're going to generalize everything. This good, that bad, okay. You have to. It's not a condemnation. It is not a condemnation. It's just it's a natural thing. You don't have the, you don't have the processing power in that mind of yours to do all of this. And there's too fucking much of it. The best thing is to just unplug the man who knows nothing closer to the truth than the man who believes bullshit. Or regulate it. As much as you possibly can. One site. Find one good source of information. Stick to it. And then it goes beyond that. And then you have to fact check it. Every fucking thing that you find, you've got to check and see if it's coming through a filter. It takes a lot of work. And then you've got to use your own mind to decide. And that's what that brings me back to Emerson and self-reliance. After the hobgoblin of little minds, when he's talking about consistency, he says, uh, your conformity explains nothing about who and what you are. The original content of your mind and the metaphorical soul. Being a fabricant says nothing. Not too far back, maybe a couple of months, I was doing a uh, social media disease series. This whole opus started because I, I wanted to delve into the golden age of propaganda. How social media, the social media disease... A huge part of it, maybe the part of it, is how propaganda is able to be disseminated easily, effortlessly. I had no idea where this was going to take me. I thought maybe this would be an episode or two, and I was going to move on to Nicholas Carr. Right? Uh, the uh, physical effects of being attached to this technology constantly. I didn't have any idea it was going to bring me this far into this. And one of the questions I have, I may have asked this in the last episode, but I wonder, has propaganda mutated now? into something else, something else entirely, a completely different organism than it was 54 years ago. How has technology changed it? It seems to be that a lot of us are these propaganda-fueled cyborgs who spend half of our time looking at the world through the Internet, through the social media filter, these, this funhouse mirrors 
of perception and taking in and then disseminating what he calls their daily portion. Their marching orders each and every day via unaccountable, via their own unaccountable digital avatars. Has technology itself, the tools we use, has it adopted these traits? Has it built them into it? Think about the share button on Facebook and the retweet thing on Twitter. How easy it is. Effortless. You don't have to gather anybody. You don't have to pass the propaganda posters around, hang them up on the street. You just hit share. I I think this comes to the core of what we're dealing with here socially. I said this a little while ago. I wish Alul were alive to tie this in to this technological tethering that we're experiencing, this constant immersion in tech and connectivity, echo chambers. We are junkies being fed our drug through a digital IV in our pocket. It's always there. I think the Matrix analogy as well. Ooh. And Alul talks about people who were far more organic, far more real than we are today back in 1965 and how they were already clueless about the world in which they lived, depending upon their propaganda of choice to define the world for them, making their judgments accordingly. In 65, this is the Matrix. It's what I've called electronic eyes. And again, Neil Postman wrote that he who defines is your master. Wrote that in the context of language. I'm going to repeat this. I think that concept stretches far, far higher than words. He who defines the world for you is your master. Choose your master wisely. If you can, try to be your own. And narratives, man. As I was recording that piece earlier, when I was talking about when I sort of lost my religion, subconsciously it dawned on me that religion and propaganda, they're narratives. These are narratives. Propaganda is a political narrative in favor of one sect against another, typically, especially in this society. What I was dealing with, with my quote-unquote New Age religion 10 years ago, was a narrative. It explained the world for me. You have to be careful about this. I know a lot of atheists. I used to be a rampaging, raging atheist online, too. I made a lot of mistakes. (laughs) Really have, but I used to do this and I understand it. You have to be careful of this because I can tell you this this is a judgment call. I'm making it. Most of the people, including me, when I really started to get into the anti religion shit, it was after I had lost mine. And most people who are railing against religion are suffering through a state of miserable fucking anime, meaninglessness purposelessness. They have no idea how to find meaning in their lives because they have rejected every single right or wrong narrative and they're trying to figure it out all on their own. And there's a really fun irony here as well because while they've rejected the spiritual narrative, they're practicing, they're usually radically adhered to the political kind, the political religion. The political narrative. So they're condemning this one over here on the spiritual realm, the personal thing, usually, unless it's being forced out of you, while completely embracing and getting intoxicated on the political kind. Did I say that right? They're rejecting and condemning and mocking the spiritual narrative while they're getting their meaning and sense of purpose and sense of identity 
from the political narrative. They don't realize they're doing the same fucking thing. Uh Guilty. Guilty. I was. Look inside yourself, Luke. You know it to be true. Nonconformity and narratives. Narratives and nonconformity. Narratives are required socially. However, an individual, I think, can think for himself. I think he can possibly, possibly, at least try and make put forth a good college effort to think for himself, by himself, as a nonconformist. But it's hard. You're going to be solitary. You're going to be isolated. That takes balls. That takes courage. That's who I'm looking for. The one standard that I have for people who are friends of mine, real friends, without the quotes, the only standard that I have is that you think, or at least try to think, try to be an individual rather than a fabricant. I know it's judgmental, and I know it's probably wrong because I understand why people do this. I understand why people adopt these um, doctrines and these um, dogmas. I've done it. I do understand it. And maybe it's hypocritical of me to judge people for doing something I've already done, but I cannot get sucked back into that. And maybe it's just a, a really uncomfortable reaction, a reflection of myself. But I think that it's important to surround yourself with people who do that and people who encourage it rather than demanding that you sort of fall in line and conform because they have. There's a flip side to this. There's a flip side to that uncomfortable reflection thing. <laughs> Peter Fonda died. And there's a line in the uh, in Easy Rider. I think it was Jack Nicholson. He said, the, they'll talk to you and talk to you and talk to you about freedom, but you show them a free individual, they're going to get scared. That goes for original thought as well. That goes for the nonconformist. I think the nonconformist quite often provides an extremely uncomfortable reflection for the conformist. They don't like that a lot of times. Maybe it's not a conscious thing. Maybe they just have an aversion to you. I've experienced that too. So maybe it goes both ways. Either way, I, I prefer and I choose not to have close relationships with people who are zombified, fabricants, who are doctrinaires, who are thinking only in these conformist terms. I'm not talking about cleverly rewording something either. I mean, if your ideological plank directly matches in every way, shape, or fashion the party plank, sorry, nobody is that homogenous in their thought. Nobody. Unless the opinions are not theirs. Let me repeat this. I'm not talking about putting a new spin on the same fucking idea. I'm smart. I can kind of see that. I can kind of see it when you're just kind of rewording something somebody else has already said to you. That's the one thing that I demand. Very few people do that. Very few people. A lot of people think they do. I'm always keeping it real. Are you? You sure? I think I got this point across pretty well earlier today, but all of this is really, really highly troubling for me on a personal level. Not only the effects of the full immersion stuff, that too, uh, but particularly the effects Lul describes as coming when the propaganda stops. It ties into another trait I mentioned in another episode, and I mentioned it earlier today, adopting the other side's propaganda when the other side's, when one side's been, been rejected. But when it's been seen for what it is, and then you run to the other one. I feel that happening. 
I, I have a pretty good idea why. Brings me to the IDW. Again, I'm going to go back to this one more time. And, you know, despite their vehement and venomous proclamations otherwise, they are, in my view, clearly a gaggle of ostentatious propagandists. They are anti, they are sort of the agitation propagandists. They're taking the examples of the far left and agitating people who already maybe have an aversion to the far left. And maybe they're doing it on purpose and maybe they're not. I don't really make a distinction. They are, by default, pushing those people further to the right. And that's made easier by the fact that they pretty much ignore everything happening in Trump town. And also ignoring everything potentially decent coming out of the left. I I got sucked into this for over a year. I'm seeing the results of this now. I've seen this twice in the last two months with two pieces of disinformation that I personally, personally, was snookered in by. And it all stems from that, the intellectual dark web. And what I ingested from those folks, based on everything I've said, Everything I've said in all these podcasts, how can you come to another conclusion other than they are propaganda? I, don't, I keep you wanting to use the word outlet. I don't know what to call them. Conglomerate? <laughs> group? They are a group. If they weren't a group, why would they have a name? It's a propaganda group. We're going to call it a group. A propaganda group. All coming from personal experience. What I've experienced in myself over the last year plus. While claiming to be ideologically neutral, the vast majority of their material, again, to repeat, is one-sided. It's focused directly at the most heinous aspects of modern-day wokedom, the woke flakes, while almost completely ignoring both Trump's metastasizing tumor and the most positive aspects of the left. All conversation is condemnation of one kind or another, Unless, of course, they're promoting their own group, the IDW, Quillet, Andy, meow, stuff like that, and directing their social media-influenced audience to the Patreon accounts to raise money. It's a product. Like CNN, Remus NBC. You just don't have to watch the dick pill ads. They're still raising money. We're raising money to do independent journalism. Is that what you're doing, Andy? No. When you go provoke Antifa to kick your ass so you can take the footage back to the internet, post it all over Twitter, get somebody with 3 million followers to encourage their 3 million followers to go give you money on Patreon. Am I not supposed to be skeptical here? Am I really not supposed to be skeptical? Am I really supposed to think that you're a journalist? Are you sure? I don't think so. That was a really huge moment. Watching him do watching him do that the first time and pretty much fail. He probably made money. Probably got his camera gear paid for the first time he got his ass kicked. But then he went back. He learned from maybe the mistakes he made the first time. Or maybe he antagonized these guys enough. So they really beat his ass this time, so we'd have better footage to basically sell and hawk on Twitter to fill his Patreon account. Please tell me I'm not supposed to be cynical about this. In this fucking day and age, are you kidding? Are you kidding? 
Look, that is the definition. What I'm talking about here is pretty much the definition of agitation propaganda, taking the worst of one side, putting it in front of people to elevate disdain, even hatred for that group of people. That's what I'm going to get into in the agitation propaganda episode. You cannot tell me, you can tell me, I'm going to laugh, that the IDW is not an agitation propaganda group. I think that's exactly what they are. I don't know that they put it together. I don't know that they set down a plan to do this. It may just be a spontaneous thing. A coincidence. A coinkidink. But that's exactly the end effect. Is agitation propaganda. I'm not going to lump them all in there. I'm sure there are decent people that I haven't heard. <laughs> maybe maybe Sam Harris is an atheist guy. I don't know. I have I, People keep telling me to go listen. You should go listen to Sam Harris's podcast. I have this thing. I don't listen to other people's podcasts. It comes from George Carlin. I don't want their material seeping into mine. I want this to be mine. So I don't really go listen to a lot of other people. I read a lot of books. But no, I typically don't go listen to a lot of people. Sam Harris is one that keeps us. Oh, you know what? I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe a couple others. What the fuck ever. From what I was seeing, the majority of those folks are, are engaged in agitation propaganda. Elements of truth there. They're not lying to you. They're taking these. They're taking real things. They're just putting their own little spin on it for, I think, an intended objective, which is to raise the disgust level directed at that group of people. Call that what you want. It's agitation with a goal. You think they're bad now. That's the goal. What's the action? Share my stuff. Send me money. I'm doing independent journalism. (laughs) But primarily, I think they have the, the 21st century media model in mind. They want you to spread their shit so they can gain more followers. More followers they have, there's more people. Raises their status. They got that number higher over there on Twitter, so therefore their status is raised. And the more followers they have, well, it stands to reason the more contributions to the Patreon account they're going to get. Huh. Now, how do you do that? How do you have 500,000 fucking followers? How do you keep them if you're not giving them a product they expect all the time? That's basic capitalism, bitches. I don't have a product. Yeah, you do. You know who doesn't have a product? There's one person I found, and he's the only person, the only human being I'm following on Twitter. I don't think Andrew Sullivan's putting forth a product. I think Andrew Sullivan is the one person that I'm aware of, and maybe others, who says what he actually thinks. I think he actually thinks it through, and opinion and reaction be damned. He puts it out there. I've seen him on Mar. Being abused. I've seen him on MSNBC being abused. The shit he takes for the stuff he writes and the stuff he says is staggering. You should go read his Twitter feed sometime. He, everybody from both sides hate him. Not everybody. He has a, no, I should, I should rephrase that. Many, many people from both sides absolutely hate him. They both say he's engaging in propaganda of one kind or another. It's hilarious. What have we learned from Mr. Alul? That the propagandee will think that anything running counter to their propaganda is propaganda. 
If he's getting it equally from both sides, I would like to see the product schematic. He's the one guy. One guy. One. Or SM? No, it's not hard to see at all. I don't think. Now, if I could only see the disinformation, is clear. <laughs> right? Anyway, yeah. Agitation propaganda, it's had an effect on me. Year and a half. No coincidence I was suckered into sharing this, these pieces of shit in the, in, the, in the wake of basking in the anti-leftist IDW propaganda for months, months, months on end, thinking mistakenly that I was just injecting information into my mind. No. And again, my mind was primed. I found this stuff. The can I believe it? Can I believe this standard? Talked about by height. Clicked in. The, the elephant said, yes, I can believe this. And the elephant rampaged. And it's still happening, man. I feel like a damn pinball. Some days I really do. If I turn anything on or I get sucked into anything political on Twitter, on Facebook, or I'm watching any of the news channels, I do. I feel like a fucking pinball. And I'm hyper aware of this. I can see it. I can feel it. It doesn't fucking matter. It still happens. You know, we've spent 10 years now. And turning opinions into commodities. These social media influencers, at least in the political realm, no, in just about every realm, have turned their opinions and or reviews into a commodity, a marketable, saleable commodity. And people are turning themselves into brands that are tied to these products. Follow the money. Be a little more savvy. If somebody's telling you to send them money, they're putting out something to appeal to you. I'm not tooting my own horn here much. I'm not going to put any advertising on this fucking thing. I don't want people to think that I'm trying to put forth a product to get you to pay me. I'm not doing this to make a living. I pay money to do this. Not a small amount. Every single month. I don't go follow people on Twitter to build my follower base to boost my downloads so I can put a dick.com commercial at the beginning of my podcasts and bring home some shekels. I don't do that. I could. I know how. All these podcasting uh, outlets have ways for you to monetize your podcast. I won't do it. I don't want to sell it. I don't want this to be a product. I want this to be as close to authentic as my defective and flawed mind can make it. And as soon as you inject money into that, as soon as you inject money into that, I've learned this from my photography, I've learned this from many different realms. Once you inject money into it, it turns into a product and you start having to craft the product to appeal to a customer base. Knowing that you have to apply that somewhere else, you have to apply that externally to the people who are trying to, To influence you. Influence you not in the content. They're not trying to influence you just in the content and what you think. They're trying to influence you to donate money or to buy something or to click something so they get money from their ads. Got to be more sophisticated, my friends. Have to be. Again, I don't want to get too judgmental here. Because, God damn it. (laughs) I really don't have the moral authority to do that this week. 
I have completely blown up my time limit thing on these podcasts. I knew that was going to happen on this one, though. So It's a marathon today. Thank you ever so much for tuning in. Hopefully I did this material justice. I think so. There's more to come. <laughs> Are you ready? Are you excited? You looking forward to it? Yeah, me too. EscapingTheCave.com is the website. ChristopherMedia.net for all your podcast needs. Go to ChristopherMedia.net. Remember to donate to the uh, Podcaster Abortion Fund via PayPal. Boom. I'm getting loopy. Boom. Did I mention my website? EscapingTheCave.com. I think I did. Thinking about doing a live feed. A video live feed. Would you watch? You want to see my charming face? My handsome face? Hi. I have a face for radio. <laughs> Cliche alert. I'll let you know about that. Once again, thanks for clicking in. Thanks for uh, sitting through this marathon. And uh, yeah, until next time, so long.